Morning, church family. Good to see you this morning. Are you a glass half full kind of person or a glass half empty kind of person? Glass half full people are the optimists among us. They, they, they always find a bright side. They always find a silver lining for every storm cloud. Glass half empty people are the pessimists among us. They believe in Murphy's Law that anything that can go wrong probably will go wrong in every situation. Which do you tend to be? Glass half full or glass half empty? Today on this first Sunday in the season of Lent, we're starting a new series from the Bible's book of Genesis called What God Intends for Good. And in this series, we're going to look at the life of a person who started out his life as a glass half full kind of person. But then, after problem after problem, setback after setback, he found himself as a glass half empty kind of person. But then by the end of his life, he learned to stop looking at the glass and how full it was entirely. For the next five weeks, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. Joseph's story is found in the final 14 chapters of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Now, functionally, Joseph's story explains how God's people ended up in Egypt. So the story of Joseph is kind of a literary bridge from the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. But Joseph's story also stands alone in its own right. You see, Joseph's story in Genesis is different than the stories about his father, Jacob, his grandfather, Isaac, and his great-grandfather, Abraham. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God usually worked in visible, obvious ways. With them, as we read these stories, we read of God sending angels, revealing promises, establishing covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in Joseph's story, God makes no sudden appearances. God reveals no clear promises, establishes no new covenants, sends no angels. The story of Joseph is a story of God working behind the scenes in hidden, unseen ways. Most people in life tend to view life as either the product of fate or the product of chance. If life is the product of fate, then everything that happens in our lives and in the world has already been predetermined. Fate is summed up in the French phrase, c'est la vie. This is life. Whatever will be, will be. If life is the product of fate, everything is completely controlled by forces outside of ourselves, whether we believe those forces to be God or the universe or nature or whatever. Fate means that we're all just victims, that we are pawns on someone else's chessboard. Fate breeds passiveness, indifference, resignation to whatever happens. Fate sees life as the glass half empty. On the other hand, if life is the product of chance, then everything that happens in our lives and in the world is without meaning, haphazard, 
without purpose. If life is the product of chance, it's up to us to make our own meaning in life. This is what many atheist philosophers such as Frederick Nietzsche and, and Albert Camus believed. Believing that life is the product of chance views life as a glass half full. Because if life is governed by chance, then life is up for grabs for whoever has the strongest will to grab life and bend it according to their own will. If fate breeds passiveness and resignation, chance breeds a, a kind of hyper control, an obsession to bend life according to our own will and desires, no matter what it takes. Now between fate and chance, is the biblical doctrine of God's providence. God's providence. God's providence refers to God's loving care and active preservation of all creation, including you and me, to achieve his purposes. God's loving care and active sovereign protection of the world that he has made so that his purposes will be achieved. God's providence is the major theme of the story of Joseph. Providence is different than fate. Providence does not mean that everything is already so predetermined that we are just puppets with God pulling the strings on the puppets. That's fate, that's not providence. God's providence allows room for the fact that each of us is responsible to act within our own individual sphere of influence. God's providence does not erase our capacity to make meaningful decisions and to act in ways to respond to what happens around us. But providence reminds us that our actions only go so far, that our influence in life is limited limited by our sphere of influence. Providence is also different than chance because providence reminds us that God has a plan, a plan for the world and a plan for you and I, our lives, and that he is at work to achieve his plans and purposes. Things that happen in our lives and in the world are not haphazard, random, without meaning. So today in Genesis chapter 37, we are going to be introduced to Joseph, the son of Jacob, the grandson of Isaac, the great-grandson of Abraham. And as we do, we're going to see two implications of this doctrine of divine providence from the story of Joseph. So if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through 11. Now let me warn you that Jacob is also called Israel in this text. He has both names, and so don't think it's talking about two different people. Jacob and Israel are the same person. So beginning in verse 2, this is the account of Jacob's family tree. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. 
Now Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for Joseph. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Joseph said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to Joseph, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. You can be seated. Joseph was the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob had children from two wives and two concubines. Don't even get me started about talking about that. <laughs> but Jacob loved his wife Rachel above all the others. And Rachel gave birth to two sons much later in Jacob's life. Rachel's first child was Joseph, Jacob's 11th son. And her second child was Benjamin, Jacob's 12th and youngest son. And Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Now, many Christian Bible teachers through the centuries have portrayed Joseph as a nearly perfect character. Joseph is often viewed by, by Christians as one of the godliest people in the Old Testament, with many parallels to Jesus himself. In fact, a, an author named Arthur Pink wrote a book a number of years ago that found more than 60 different parallels between Jesus and Joseph. But it may surprise you that over the centuries, Jewish Bible teachers have taken the opposite approach with Joseph. Jewish Bible interpreters consistently portray Joseph in this chapter as spoiled, egotistical, and narcissistic. So which is it? Is Joseph a saint or a sinner? Well, I suspect he's probably both. Because he's probably just like the rest of us. Here in Genesis 37, we're introduced to Joseph when he was 17 years old. And in verse 2, we're told that he likes to snitch on his older brothers. Like many younger siblings, Joseph was his father's informant, rushing to give a bad report whenever his older brothers were doing something wrong, which of course causes his older brothers to resent him. Pretty typical family dynamics here. But then we're told in verse 3 that Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved any of his other sons. 
Jacob was guilty of the sin of favoritism, unfair and preferential treatment of Joseph over his other sons. Jacob even had a special robe tailored just for Joseph to wear. And the, the King James Version translation calls it a coat of many colors. And of course, this led to the whole Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, Joseph and the America, the amazing Technicolor dream coat to give us a picture of this coat of many colors, like this picture of Joseph's robe from the episode of Seinfeld where Kramer borrows the robe and is walking down the street with the robe from the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. But the Hebrew word in verse 3 probably means something closer to what the NIV translates it as ornate. The kind of robe a king or a noble would wear that would set them apart from everybody else. Now I was reading this and I was thinking about this. In most families... Younger siblings get the hand-me-down clothes. They get the clothes that the older siblings have outgrown, and if you have a lot of kids, by the time the younger kids get the hand-me-downs, they're, they're a little tattered, maybe have a hole or two in them. But Jacob does the opposite with Joseph. Jacob gives Joseph clothing that sets Joseph apart as privileged and favored. It would be like buying Kirkland jeans from Costco for all of your kids, but then giving one of your kids a tailored Armani suit or a custom Louis Vuitton dress just for that one child to wear. Jacob's overt favoritism caused the brothers to hate Joseph even more. When Joseph came into the room wearing his Armani robe, the other brothers refused to even greet him. In verses 5 through 10, we're told that Joseph also had dreams. Now, according to an Old Testament scholar, actually a Jewish Old Testament scholar named Nahan Sarna, back then, people believed dreams were premonitions about the future. So when someone told you that they had a dream, when they described the dream, they were also making a prediction about what was going to happen in the future. But Sarna says that back then, dreams were also believed to reflect the inner motives, desires, and aspirations of the person who had the dream. So Joseph's account of his dreams would have been understood by his family as a prediction about the future that reflected Joseph's own personal ambitions and desires. The first dream involves seven or uh, 12 sheaves of grain, each representing a brother, with the 11 sheaves bowing down to Joseph's sheaf. The meaning is self-evident here that Joseph will rule over his brothers. And this dream hangs over the family like an omen about the future. They hate him all the more. The, the second dream consists of the sun, moon, and 11 stars all bowing down to Joseph. And in this case, it's his father, Jacob, and his mother, Rachel, who has died, by the way, who's going to bow down to Joseph along with his 11 brothers. And even Joseph's father, Jacob, rebukes him for telling the family about this dream. And these two dreams hang over this family like a cloud. Now, uh, there's a Bible scholar named Walter Brueggemann who wrote a commentary on Genesis. And he pictures the relationships in this family like a triangle. Jacob represents 
loving someone too much. Jacob himself was raised by a mother who loved him too much at the expense of his brother Esau and a father who loved his brother Esau too much at his own expense. Favoritism is familiar territory in this family. A marriage and family therapist would have a field day analyzing the dynamics of favoritism within this family. Jacob's preferential treatment for Joseph blinds him to the damage he's doing to his other brothers. Jacob is literally fueling the fire of hatred among his other sons. We can love someone too much. So much that person becomes an idol in our lives, a false god, loving them more than we even love God. Joseph represents being loved too much. Joseph is an example of what we today call privilege. Joseph didn't choose who his mother was or where he was in the birth order. These things were beyond Joseph's control. And yet because of this thing, these things that he had no control over, he was favored above his brothers. Joseph was given special rights and special advantages that Jacob withheld from his older brothers. He was privileged because he was loved too much by his father. And the other brothers represent being loved too little. If we view love as a zero-sum proposition, which is probably the wrong way to view love, but there's only so much love to go around. And so loving Joseph too much meant that there wasn't enough love to go around for the older brothers. And so the older brothers feel ignored, spurned, invisible, unseen by their father. All of us have probably experienced this triangle. All three points at some point in our lives. Our families or in the workplace or with friends. This triangle threatens to destroy this family. But according to, to Genesis chapters 12 through 36, God has gone all in on this family. This family is the key to God's plan to undo the curse of sin in our world and to replace it with the blessing of salvation for all the peoples of the world. It's not an understatement to say the salvation of the world rests in the future of this family. And this triangle threatens to destroy it. Now let me summarize the rest of this chapter fairly quickly. To neutralize Joseph's dreams, the brothers throw Joseph into a pit. And, and it happens this way. J Jacob sends Joseph to the wilderness to check up on his brothers because, because that's what Joseph does, right? He brings back the, 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 the news. And naive and oblivious to their hatred to him, he shows up in the wilderness wearing his Armani robe. And as they see him walking from a distance, the brothers conspire to kill him. Kill the dreamer, kill the dreams, they think. Only one brother objects, so they throw Joseph into a pit while they debate what to do. To reclaim their place in their family, the brothers strip Joseph of the robe that their father gave him. 
Joseph's Armani robe has turned the family order upside down. So the 11th born is at the top of the heap instead of the bottom. And so when they rip the robe off Joseph's body, they are hoping to restore the proper order of things. To rid themselves of the threat, they sell Joseph as a slave to a foreign land. They find a caravan on its way to Egypt. And instead of killing Joseph, Judah, Jacob's fourth son, persuades them to sell Joseph as a slave to Egypt instead. And so at this point, they no longer view Joseph as their brother or even as a person. They view him as an object, a commodity, a product that they can get 20 pieces of silver for. And ironically, generations later, it will be the descendants of these very same brothers who will themselves find themselves slaves in Egypt, just as they sold their brother as a slave. And finally, to regain their father's affection, they mislead Jacob. They drench the torn up Armani robe in blood and present it to their father as evidence of Joseph's demise. Brueggemann says the robe began in deep love. It was torn in deep hate. And now it is the main tool for deep deception. But if the brothers were hoping that this would heal their family and make things right, they were wrong. It doesn't work. Jacob is inconsolable, ready to die in grief over the loss of his favored son. The loss of Joseph doesn't fix anything. Joseph's absence just reveals all the more Jacob's favoritism of Joseph. The actions of the brothers only amplifies the brokenness of this family. This family is still a mess. Here's what I want you to notice about Genesis 37. God is never mentioned once. Even Joseph's dreams are not directly attributed to God. Instead, we simply have people living life. People making decisions. Decisions to love and to withhold love. To give favoritism. Decisions to describe dreams to betray, to hate, to plot murder, to kidnap, to deceive. If Genesis 37 were a play, Jacob, Joseph, and the older brothers would all be on the stage, but God would never make it an appearance on the stage. And yet the doctrine of God's providence hangs over this chapter, informing everything that happens. So let's consider two implications of divine providence that I think are very relevant for us in this season of Lent. Here's the first one. God is active in every situation. In every situation, God is active. Now please hear me. I'm not saying that God causes every situation. I'm not saying that God is active in actively giving someone cancer or guiding a piece of shrapnel so it hits a preschool during war. To say that would be closer to the idea of fate, that everything that happens is predetermined. That's not divine providence. 
What I'm saying is that God is active even in circumstances and situations that God did not actively cause in our lives. In Genesis chapter 50, the conclusion of Joseph's life, he will say to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, you intended all this to harm me, but God intended it for good to save lives. That's where I got the the title for this series, What God Intends for Good. So I'm learning rather than asking why is God causing this in my life, to ask a different question. What's God's invitation to me in this situation? If God is active in every situation, even in situations he's not directly causing to happen, God, what are you inviting me to do? Doesn't mean these situations are any less painful or awful or unjust or gut-wrenching or enraging. It simply means that God is working in every situation. And here's the other implication I want to mention. God is active through, with, and sometimes despite human actions. Through, with, and sometimes despite. Trusting in God's providence does not eliminate our responsibility or human action. We are still responsible, able to respond, able to make meaningful decisions and make choices within our sphere of influence. Sometimes God works through human action. We know what God is doing and God is working through us to do what he's doing. As as a pastor, I sometimes feel this way when I'm preaching a sermon. After prayer and study, I have a sense of what God wants to say to us as a congregation. And then God works through my imperfect words to say what he wants to say. Sometimes God works through us. But sometimes God works with us. We don't know what God is up to. And even though we don't know what God is up to, we still try to make right choices. We make decisions. We go through life exercising the influence that we have, trying to to do it in a godly way. And God is working with our actions in ways that we don't yet see. And often it's only in retrospect when we look back that we can see how God was working alongside of our decisions and actions. But sometimes God works despite human action. You know, Joseph's brothers thought selling Joseph as a slave would kill Joseph's dreams, and they inadvertently guaranteed those dreams would come true, as we'll see later in Genesis. God's plan cannot be derailed by human action. God's plan cannot be halted by any world government, by any economic up or down. It cannot be derailed by a pandemic or canceled by a war. If we believe in God's providence, then we believe that no power in heaven or earth can stop God from fulfilling his plan for your life for his world. As Christians, we believe that our lives are not governed by chance, nor are they governed by fate. 
that life in our world is governed by God and his divine providence, his loving and sovereign preservation of the world to ultimately achieve his good purposes. Joseph's fall from privileged son to foreign slave reveals that God works through every situation, even situations intended to harm. So on this first Sunday of Lent, as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper together. Is there a situation in your life that you are having difficulty trusting that God is active in? You see, I'm, I'm convinced that some Christians look at their lives through the lens of fate or chance. And that leads them to either passively give up, throw up their hands in resignation, or to try to control everything that happens around them. We have difficulty wrapping around our head around the idea that our actions really do matter, but it's also true that God is sovereignly guiding our lives and guiding his world towards his good purposes. And until we really believe in God's providence in our hearts as well as in our minds, will either live as helpless victims or as control freaks trying to control everything around us. From Joseph, he learned to do neither. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this life, this imperfect life of a man who learned to trust you of a person who learned that you are sovereign. Of someone who learned to serve you from the heights of influence to the depths in the pit. He served you. Father, I pray for those who are here today who are facing a pit that they are having difficulty understanding. Some may be in that pit because they put themselves there. Others were pushed there by circumstances beyond their control or even by others who intended to harm them. Lord, may we, like Joseph, find you in the pit and find assurance that you are always working to achieve your loving purposes. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.